0: As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. And we open our mouths and pant because we long for your commandments. Turn to us and be gracious to us as is your way with those who love your name. And make your face shine upon your servants and teach us your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's Word to the book of Psalms, Psalm 119, Psalm 119. We're not going to read the whole Psalm together this evening, but we are going to read the first eight verses of Psalm 119. Uh, You'll find that on page 650 of many of our Pew Bibles, Psalms is between the books of Job and Proverbs, kind of right near the middle of our Bibles, Psalm 119. And we're going to read the first eight verses together and think about this in connection with the second petition of the Lord's Prayer. So Psalm 119, beginning at verse 1, and let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Well, we spoke last time about the kingdom of God and began to think about what we understand by the kingdom of God. And we started thinking about God's universal kingdom, how God is king over all, how he's always been king over all, will always be king over all. We thought about his universal kingdom, but we also recognize that we we pray thy kingdom come. We can't be speaking about that aspect of his kingdom. Because if that kingdom has always been, that kingdom does not need to come. Uh, That kingdom simply is and always has been. And so when we think about praying thy kingdom come, we're really talking about a different aspect of the kingdom of God. Not that universal aspect where God is king and rules over all, but the particular way in which he rules his church. Uh, the, The special kingdom of God, we sometimes call it, or the special aspect of the kingdom of God, that particularly where God exercises his rule for the church. Uh, Ursinus, one of the principal authors of the Heidelberg Catechism, described that special kingdom and how we think about God's special kingdom in this way. Um, It's the kingship which he exercises in his church that consists in sending his son from the Father, from the very beginning of the world, that he might institute and preserve the ministry of the church and accomplish his purposes by it. That he might gather a church from the whole human race by his word and spirit, rule, preserve, and defend it against all enemies, raise it from death, and at length, having cast all enemies into everlasting condemnation, adorn it with heavenly glory, that God may be all in all and be praised eternally by the church. Uh, Did you get all that? Um, If you didn't, that's okay. One of the reasons I read that long quote is there's a lot to the kingdom of God. That's the thing I want you to take away. Even when we talk about the special kingdom of God, there are lots of different ways we can talk about that, how God is bringing his kingdom to bear in the world, how God is bringing his kingdom to bear in us. There are a lot of different aspects of it. The catechism reminds us that God's kingdom in that special sense is a kingdom of grace in this world. Where he's working by grace in that kingdom that he has inaugurated through the work of his son but that kingdom of grace in this world will become a kingdom of glory in the world to come when the kingdom is consummated at the return of our lord jesus christ and so when we talk about the kingdom coming we can understand we we can mean that in a lot of different ways uh, how it comes in the world how it comes in us how it comes now how it comes in the future we can talk about all those kinds of aspects. And you'll be relieved to know I'm not going to try to talk about all of those aspects tonight. Uh, or Sinus right after this quote, says we can break that down into eight different things about the kingdom. Um, I'm not going to have an eight-point sermon tonight. What I really want to do is just touch on that first part of the petition where the catechism points our attention. Uh, the first part of what we mean when we say, thy kingdom come. And what is the first part that the catechism explains about that request It says, your kingdom come means rule us by your word and spirit in such a way that more and more we submit to you. This first aspect of the coming kingdom is a very personal aspect, isn't it? The first element of that request is make your kingdom come more and more in us, that we might be conformed to your kingdom. In another sense, what we could say is that request is really make us subjects of your kingdom. Uh, That's what we really desire, to be subjects of the kingdom of God, to be conformed to that kingdom. How do we become subjects of the kingdom? Well, well, by submitting to the king, uh, to acknowledging that he is king and desiring to be subjects of that kingdom. Um, And our prayer, our first and foremost prayer, is that personally we would, by the Word and Spirit working on us, submit more and more to the kingdom of God. Uh, It's really a petition for submission in that sense, that we would submit to your kingdom, that we would be good subjects of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the great Scriptural statements about submitting to the lordship of God is really found in Psalm 119. As a whole, it is a great psalm for expressing that commitment to the Lord's word, particularly as it goes on, and that desire to be conformed to His word more and more. I think if I ask most of you, what do you know about Psalm 119, Uh, you know that it's the longest psalm in the Psalter. That's why I heard a smattering of chuckling when I said we're not going to read the whole psalm. It's 176 verses. If we did that, there wouldn't be time for a sermon. Um, It would be a good use of our time maybe some Sunday night to just do that, to read through the whole psalm. Um, If I didn't suspect that you just think I didn't do my work that week and was taking an easy layup. Um, But it would be a good use of our time to read through the psalm, to hear it, to really meditate on it. Um, it's a wonderful psalm, but maybe the most we know about it is it's long. Uh, maybe to the extent we know anything else about the 119th psalm, we know that it's, it's an alphabetic psalm or an acrostic psalm, that every line of each section begins with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, you may have noticed before verse 1 of Psalm 119, it says Aleph. That's the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And every verse of this paragraph begins with that Hebrew letter. So all of them begin with Aleph, and then the next beginning of verse 9, they all begin with the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Bet. All the lines begin with that same letter. Um, So some people have said it's the ABCs of discipleship. Um, All the lines begin with A, then all the lines with B, and so on through the whole Hebrew alphabet. Um, So maybe we know that it's an acrostic psalm like that. It works alphabetically through language. And maybe we also know that it's about the Word of God. This longest psalm in the Psalter is all about God's Word. It's all about God's Word. Um, it, it generally speaks about God's Word using eight different Hebrew words for the Word of God. Um, eight different words that come out. Some of them are used here in this section that we're looking at this evening to talk about what God's Word is and how we should think about the Word of God. But maybe apart from those, you know, sort of basic facts about Psalm 119, we don't know much about it. Um, And this is a wonderful psalm to meditate on, to think about as God's people. And we want to spend just some time thinking about the beginning of it here, because it's a wonderful psalm that expresses this desire of God's people to be conformed to Him more and more by His Word that God would help us to submit to him more and more by the word that he has given to us and that by his word and spirit, we might come to know him better. And so I thought it'd be wonderful for us to think about these first eight verses in connection with that second petition of the Lord's Prayer, to think about what it means to submit ourselves to the Lord. Because I think in many ways, these first eight verses teach us about submission by teaching us the delights of submission and then about the desire for submission, and finally about the demands of submission. And I thought that's how we could think about this in connection with the petition, second petition of the Lord's Prayer, the desire, I'm sorry, the delights of submission, the desire for submission, and the demands of submission. Um, We probably live in a world where submission as an idea has fallen on hard times. Um, I've in the weddings I've performed as a, as a minister, I've had several times brides tell me that when it comes to the marriage vows that talk about submitting to their husbands, they, they sometimes face a little rancor among the bridesmaids. Are you really going to do that? Are you really going to promise to submit to him like that? Um, submission, I think, in general, I'm not just trying to blame brides, but that's just the example that came to mind. Um, don't, don't take issue with me later. Um, but it's a, it's a word that we don't really like. I think probably as Americans, that's a hard word, too. We're, we're exemplified by rugged individualism. We don't like this idea of having to submit to anyone. So I think in that in that way, submission as a general concept has kind of fallen on hard times. It's maybe a tough sell to people to say we want to submit to a king as Christians. And I think... The psalmist recognizes that the Holy Spirit obviously knows us better than we know ourselves. And so where does the psalmist really begin for us? By saying, it's a delight to submit to the Lord. Um, It's a delight to submit to the Lord. This is not some grudging duty, but it's really a delightful thing to submit to the Lord. And so the psalm really begins by defining for us what submission looks like and then telling us why it is such a delight. Um, How does the psalm begin to talk about what it means to submit to the Lordship of God and to follow Him? Uh, Verses 1 and 2 begin really by speaking about that kind of external obedience that you see in those who are committed to the Lord, whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord, and who keep His testimonies. Those are all action words. Their way, their walk, their keeping – uh, those are all speaking of godly actions uh, that really define what it means to submit to our God, who are blameless in their way. Um, what does the psalmist mean when he talks about blamelessness? Um, it means conformity to the will of God. It means someone who is typified by their conformity to the will of God. It doesn't mean that we do it perfectly perfectly. When Paul instructs Titus to choose elders who are above reproach, I think that's the New Testament equivalent of this Old Testament word, blameless, uh, that someone is known for their conformity to the law of God. And that's the first thing that that characterizes godly people, that they are blameless in their way. They walk in a way that is in conformity with the way of God. Uh, They not only are blameless in their way, but they walk according to the law of the Lord. Uh, Here is this great psalm on the Word of God. The first way it speaks about the Word of of God is to use that word law, Uh, the Torah of God. And particularly to say the law of the Lord, using the covenant name of Yahweh, brings to mind the Lord who spoke from Sinai, the Lord who spoke His law. And so who are those who submit to the Lord? Those Those are the people that walk in the law that He has given. Their way is blameless, they walk in the law of Yahweh, and they keep his testimonies. That's the second word that's used here for the word of God, his testimonies. Uh, We understand that word from our common usage. If you're in a courtroom, there's someone who gives testimony. It's someone who testifies to something. That brings out the idea that God's word is a testimony to who he is and to what he calls his people to do. And those who submit to the Lord are those who keep his testimonies, keep the ways he's testified to us about how we are to walk with him. So people who submit to the Lord are defined by their godly actions and their godly actions that flow from a godly heart. Where do these actions come from? They come from those who seek him with their whole heart. Right? It's not just external obedience that the Lord is looking for, it's obedience that proceeds from a heart that loves him. Uh, and a godly heart here is defined as a whole heart. A heart that is not divided in its loves, a heart that's not divided in its commitments, a heart that is devoted to the Lord. Uh, that's how submission is being defined here, godly actions flowing from that godly attitude of heart. This is what defines those who submit to the Lord. And the psalmist says, what is true about those who do this? Um, Blessed is the one who does this. Uh, Twice the word blessed is used to describe the godly person. That's unique in all of this long psalm. To use the same word again to begin a statement. To begin a stanza of, of this long psalm. Now, why is that important? Well, because it would be kind of simple to repeat words, right? Think about trying to write a poem where you're going to write eight lines for every letter of the English alphabet, and you need to begin every line with the word, you know, first with a word that begins with A, then with B, then with C. If you can repeat words, it makes your job a lot easier. Uh, Sometimes the way if you read bad poetry and they repeat two of the same words to rhyme, you say, I'm not sure it's really fair to rhyme same with same. Um, I'm not sure that's really very artistic or very creative. It, you know, we might strike us as kind of lazy. Uh, maybe it represents some of the English compositions we wrote when we were in school. Um, but not high literature, maybe. But what what this is doing is showing the importance of this word. Uh, this is not an act of laziness. This is not an act of artistic uh, sloppiness by the psalmist. This is very intentional to use this word and to use this word twice. To speak about the delights of following the Lord. Because how, how are we to think about those who live a life in submission to the Lord? They live a blessed life. Um, it's a Hebrew word that really we could translate happy. Uh, The biblical name Asher comes from this word, and Asher means happy. Um, And in in this sense here, this word is doubled in Hebrew. It's in a double form when it appears here. And what what it's driving home is not just a kind of happiness, but an ultimate kind of happiness. It intensifies the word happy. Um, Maybe the, the best we could kind of do in an English translation would be to say, how happy is the person that does this. Um, And in a sense, what the the psalmist is doing here is echoing the beginning of the Psalter. Psalms 1 and 2 that begin the the book of Psalms, and in many ways are kind of a summary of the whole book, they begin and end with blessedness. Um, So these two, Psalms 1 and 2, that's why we we sang them. There is sometimes a method to my madness. Um, we, We sang both of those Psalms. Why? Because... They are the bookends on the introduction to the Psalter. They they give a sort of introduction to the whole book of the Psalms as a whole, and they end and be, and they begin and end with the word blessed. They begin and end with that concept. Now think about how Psalm 1 begins. Blessed how happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Um, It's the kind of happiness that Psalm 2 speaks about at the end of the Psalm. Psalm 2 ends, "'Kiss the son lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed, how happy are those who take refuge in him.'" That introduction to the Psalter begins there, and I think the psalmist here is trying to bring out an echo of that, uh, to talk about the delights of finding yourself walking with the Lord, the delights of submitting to Him, that those who walk with the Lord find that kind of incomparable, immeasurable happiness that only communion with the Lord can give us. And how is that happiness conceived of in this psalm? How does this submission to the Lord make us happy? How is this a delight to us? The psalm promises we'll be happy as those who do no wrong. Verse 3, those who do no wrong. Um, Wrong there is particularly wrong that hurts other people. It's a sense of wronging someone by what you do. And one of, the, one of the ways that we, be, we are happy when we submit to the law of the Lord is that we love the Lord, we love one another, and we don't do any harm to people. That's one of the ways that we find a delight in serving the Lord. We do no wrong. We'll also be happy, the psalm says, when we walk in God's ways, second part of verse 3. We walk in His ways. This has a sense of walking God's footsteps after Him. We are walking the way that God walks. And that's a glorious thing. We will be happy as those, verse 4 says, who obey His commands. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Here's a third way about speaking of the law of the Lord. Precepts are particularly commands that you give servants. It's, It's a kind of form of what we read in Genesis when Potiphar made Joseph an overseer of his house. This, this word for precepts has connection with that same word for overseer. It's, it's being a good servant to do the will of God. Um, and this is saying one of the blessings that come to God's people when they submit to the rule of God, that we are submitting as good servants to the things that He has commanded us. We're blessed because we are doing the things that He has commanded The you there in verse 4 is emphatic. You have commanded them. You are the Lord. You have commanded. And the blessing that comes to those who submit to Him as we are following as good servants of Him who has commanded these things. And the psalm says we'll also be happy as those who have no reason to be ashamed. That's the the thrust of verse 6. Then I shall not be put to shame having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. When I look at your commandments, when I look at the things that you've commanded us to do, and I fix my eyes on them and I think about my life, I'll have no reason to be ashamed. Isn't that a glorious promise? To fix your eyes on the commandments and not to feel shame before them? That's the happiness that's held out to us in this psalm. To not just do these things because this is what God requires of us, not just because it's our duty to do them, but because it's a delight to do them. It's a blessing to do them. It's how happiness, a true kind of immeasurable, incomparable happiness, is found. And that's why the delight of submitting to God leads to the desire for submission, in this psalm, once the, des, once the delights of what it means to follow God are meditated upon, it only naturally leads then the psalmist to ask for these things, to express the desire to be conformed to these things. And that desire is expressed in the psalm in a way that recognizes only God can confer this kind of blessedness. I think that really is from what comes from that that desire expressed in verse 5. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Meditating on all the delights of following God. What does that stir up in the hearts of people who love him? They say, oh, that I would be conformed to that kind of life. Oh, that my ways would be, another way of translating that is, established. It's it's really a prayer for steadfastness, that you would establish me in this kind of steadfastness. It's a recognition, I can't find this on my own. I can't produce this kind of happiness in myself, right? I am not going to live up to this standard without help. I'm not going to be able to submit to you if you don't help me to find this kind of happiness, Because as we meditate on this psalm and we meditate on what this kind of life looks like, it should bring to our minds that Jesus Christ is the only one who's ever lived this kind of life. He's the only one who could ever have looked to these things and said, I do them all. My heart is wholly devoted to my Father. I walk in His ways. I keep His testimonies. I walk in His law. I look at, I fix my eyes on his commandments, and I have no reason to be ashamed. Right? Only the Lord Jesus Christ could say that perfectly. Only he's achieved that happiness by his own merit. And we understand, the psalmist understood, we must understand as well, we can only find that kind of happiness by his grace and by his help. And that's why the psalmist makes that, that plea for steadfastness. Oh, that my ways would be established and that you would establish them. Because if we are to walk with you, we have to be established by you. Steadfastness can come from no one else. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, saying, Thy kingdom come. It's a recognition in our prayers That one of the primary needs we have is for God to rule in us more and more by His Word and Spirit so that we submit more and more to Him. Uh, We need help if we are going to achieve that. It also explains the request, the desire that's expressed at the end of of this portion of the psalm as well. Do not utterly forsake me. It's a recognition of our need for help that the psalmist ends with that plea. It's also a recognition that we have a hard lot in this life trying to follow Jesus in a world that's committed to not following him. Um, It's hard enough for sinners to walk in the Lord's ways. It's even more difficult to walk in the Lord's ways when you're surrounded by enemies in this world. Right, we're trying to walk according to the principles of a kingdom that's not of this world. That's what we're trying to submit to. The problem with that is we're in this world and we're surrounded by people who are not committed to the ways of that kingdom, who are opposed to it and will seek to try to put us off that purpose. That comes up again and again in Psalm 119, that recognition that we are not living, this is not an ivory tower meditation on holiness, that we are living in the real world with real difficulties and real opponents. And we recognize that we cannot make a step in the right direction If we are not helped, we need to be established by the Lord. And that's where we have this prayer also come. Do not utterly forsake me. Help me to walk in this way. And we can be thankful to be this side of the cross from where the psalmist was and to know what Jesus has done for his people and to have that ensured promise that he gave his people. I will be with you always to the very end of the age. The prayer here is, do not utterly forsake us. And Jesus is the answer to that prayer. I will not utterly forsake you. I will be with you always to the very end of the age. This desire for submission that's expressed here. And so is that all the psalm has for us? Does it just say, these are things that are delightful if you have them, And you can't have them on your own, so you better just pray for them. And then what do we do? Sit around twiddling our thumbs and waiting for submission to the Lord to just drop on us out of heaven? Uh, No, the psalmist also then talks about the resolve that God's people need to have, the demands for submission that we read about in this psalm. Um, There are commitments that we need to make as God's people if we want to desire to walk in this kind of way. We need help. We need to be sure that we pray for that help, but there are also things we need to do that this psalm talks about. And so what are the demands for submission then that we read about in this psalm? Well, first the psalmist talks about a commitment to learn. Uh, There are only two that I'm going to do, so don't despair. What what is the first demand that we see here from the psalmist? He says, the first commitment we need to make is to learn. Uh, We see that expressed in verse 7, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. Uh, This is another word for the Word of God, rules. It's a a word that kind of means rulings, uh, God's judgments on things, how God sees things. We have to learn to see things the way God sees them. We cannot just expect to automatically understand things. Uh, We need the illumination of His Word. Someone said, we cannot assume we automatically know what is right and what God requires of us. We have to listen and we have to learn. Um, And not surprisingly, a meditation on the Word of God would tell us learn His Word, learn His rulings. That's what we have in the Bible, His judgments, Uh, what He says is right, not what we think we ought to do, but what He thinks we ought to do. Not who we think God is, but who God says He is. Uh, Not what we hope He might do for us, but what He has surely promised to do for us. That's why we need to be spending time regularly in the Word of God. Um, That's why preaching is the central thing we do. So that God's Word would be read and expounded for us, so we can meditate on it in an extended period of time together. But it's also important for us to be in the Word. Learning what God has to say. Learning about what he's commanded us to do and learning what he's promised to do for us. We sometimes call that the law and the gospel or the law and the promises. It's interesting that in this poem that is so much about the word of God, the number one word that's often used is law. And the second word is a word that we sometimes translate word in this psalm, but really could also be translated promise. Promise. So what is this great psalm about the Word of God constantly set before us? The law and the promise. The things God's called us to do and the things that God has promised to do for us. And that really is what all of the Bible is about. That's really what we must learn about our God from His Word One person put it, law and promise form the way that God governs and guides his people into increasing fellowship with him. The law directs positively and negatively, and the promises support and restore us. We need God's law to direct us, to tell us the things that we need to do, to tell us the things that we should not do. We need the law to help direct us, and when we listen to the law, we find out about the holiness of our God. We find out who He is. We see something of the holiness of His character. We understand what He's called us to and how that's good. We understand how we fall short of it and how we need a savior. We understand how we are to thank God for His deliverance by doing the things that He commands us to do and staying away from those things that we know He hates. The law helps us with those things. But what does the promise do for us? The more we meditate on the promises of God, the more we see the generosity of His grace. What our God has done for us in Christ. Um, I like that idea that we understand more of how His promises support and restore us. Um, His promises support us when we are falling short of where we should walk as Christians, when we stumble and fall. We understand the support that we are given from our God. We also understand how His promises help to restore us. Um, You know, when we witness a baptism, it can almost feel like a sacrament. It's just being administered to one person who has water dripping down his face, uncomfortably in front of everyone. Um, But it should be an occasion for us all to remember our own baptisms. And to remember the promises that God has made to us, those promises that can be boiled down to, I will be your God and you will be my people. How those promises ought to support us throughout our lives. How they offer restoration to us when we find ourselves out of step with the Spirit. That we go back to our God in repentance and we find our God saying to us, I am still your God and you are still my child. I have not changed in my purpose. One of the great things the scripture holds out to us as a promise is, I do not change, the Lord says, therefore you are not consumed. Um, His promises support us. His promises hold out to us the hope of restoration. And the more we learn about God and his righteous rules, the more we will be able to praise him. It's interesting those two things are attached here. In verse 7, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. We should be committed to learning the word of God as his people. And then the psalm speaks of committing to keep his word, committing to keep the word of our God. Um, There's a resolve that's stated and expressed in verse 8 when the psalmist says, I will keep your statutes. There's not just a commitment to learn here, there's a commitment to keep, isn't there? A commitment by the psalmist to walk in these ways, to keep these testimonies, to do all of the things that lead to a blessed life. Now, we have already said you can't do that in your own strength, and I don't think it's any coincidence that this statement of resolve is attached to a desperate plea for help, right? I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. I'm resolved, but I recognize the help I need. Um, And we need to do both, I think, in the Christian life. To respect how much help we need and to be a praying people, uh, but also to be a people of resolve. To resolve to keep the statutes of our God. Here we have another word for the law of God, for the word of God, the statutes of God. Uh, They have... They capture that sense of abiding quality. It comes from the same word that we sometimes use for engravings in the Old Testament. Well, not we use, but they used when they wrote it. Uh, Engraving or inscribed, it brings out that permanent quality of the Word of God, that abiding quality of the Word of God, Uh, that kind of quality we read in Isaiah 40 verse 8, right? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever, um, the Word has an abiding quality, um, an enduring quality. There should be an in, abiding, enduring quality in the commitment God's people make to His Word. Right? There should be a correspondence. We understand that Word abides and we want to be a people who abide, who want to follow our Lord in that way. Right? We heard this morning about the iron will of our Lord. He was resolved in His will to follow The will of his father. It made me think of Tennyson's Ulysses. He is strong in will to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. That's our Lord. That's who he is as our king. That's who he is as our savior. And we should strive to be like that as his people. Right? To seek to follow him. That's why the words for pursuing holiness are strenuous words in scripture. The words that talk about a pursuit or a real hungering for righteousness. Right? We should be hungering and thirsting for righteousness. We should be people who are striving for holiness. That's how the writer of Hebrews speaks about that resolve. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's an active pursuit, that word for striving. It's the kind of pursuit word you use when you're chasing after someone and trying to run them down. It's hot pursuit, like the police engage in. That's the kind of pursuit of holiness we are to be exercising as Christians. To strive to be holy. To hunger and thirst for righteousness. To follow our Lord in that attitude he expressed in John four thirty four: My food is to do the will of him who sent me. And to accomplish his work. The kind of commitment we see the Apostle Paul expressing in Philippians chapter 3, 12 to 14. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on Toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I press on. I strain towards. I press on. And why does he do that? What is his motivation? Uh, not to make himself something he's not, but because of what has happened to him. Christ Jesus has made me his own. That's why I strive towards him. He's made me his own. That's why I press on towards him. That's why I strive for holiness. Because of the great salvation we received. Because he's called us to be a people to keep his statutes and to follow after him. See how this psalm wonderfully combines that notion that we cannot do this in our own strength, but it is the desire of our hearts. And may the Lord help us to learn more and more about Him in His Word and to have a heart to keep what we find in the Word, to recognize the service that we need and to find the strength and the help of the Holy Spirit to do it. That we would not try to do these things in our own strength, but routinely go to God in prayer asking for the help and the grace of the Holy Spirit to be more and more like our Lord and Savior, that we might, by God's grace and with the help of His Holy Spirit, find the happiness that this psalm speaks about. May all here find that with the help of our God. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this psalm. We pray that more and more we would be equipped by your Spirit to hide your word in our hearts, that we would not sin against you that we would learn more and more about Christ and grow in grace and in a knowledge of Him, that we would find ourselves more and more striving after holiness and finding the blessedness of walking in Your ways. Lord, we acknowledge that we are far short of what we would want to be and what we one day will be with the help of Your Son, but Lord, we pray that You would help us to learn about Your Word more and more and follow where You've led, that we might glorify Your name and experience the happiness of following our Lord and Savior. Hear us and help us, for we ask in his name. Amen.